During communion today, I was just struck with um, what a privilege it is that we, we're, we're not a social club. We don't gather uh, because we're all alike. We don't gather because um, we all have the same shared perspectives and interests, but we gather because of one thing, one thing alone that unites us deeper than any of those superficial things. We, we gather because we're united by we're all feasting on the body of Christ, and that unites us as one body closer than any other human bond or relationship. And then not only that, we drink, now not literally, but we drink of his blood. We, we drink of the fact, we, we find all of our life in the fact that he's died for us to give us new life to wash away our sins, to take God's wrath, and to give us hope in him. And so I was just really struck by that and thinking what a privilege it is that we're all eating the same body, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And what a joy it is to be together as one today. So um, we are, turn your Bibles to Revelation 20. We're continuing in our series. We are just a few weeks away from the end of the series on Revelation. And last week, if you were here, um, you remember we saw the second coming of Jesus in Revelation 19, the return of Jesus. The clouds open up. Jesus rides in on a horse with his victorious army and conquering the beast and the false prophet, throwing the beast and the false prophet into the fiery lake. And today, we're going to see the continuance of what happens next. When Jesus returns, what happens next after that return of Christ? And we see that in Revelation 20. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10, seeing the reign of Jesus. And then next week, looking at the great white throne, the following week, seeing the new heaven and the new earth. And, and this is just the, the beginning of the final times. And so what a privilege it is that God has shown us these things for our good and for our encouragement. Let's read God's holy inspired word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you care about us so much, that you, you reveal these things to us for our hope, for our good, for our encouragement. God, thank you that you reveal these things to us that we might trust in you, that you might steady us in everyday life. God, I pray that you would protect us from speculation, Lord. Protect us from division, Lord. Protect us from trying to have all the details that aren't here figured out. But Lord, I pray that we would tr- you would trust you for the, for the things you have shown us, Lord, knowing that you have our good in mind. God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us here to humble ourselves before you. Open up our eyes to see you, behold you. Lord, open up our minds and our hearts, Lord, to understand you, to receive from you, to respond to you. And God, I pray that you would enable me to preach your word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This past summer, we had the privilege of traveling across much of the United States. We, we took an RV all the way out to the West Coast. Along the way, we stopped at, I don't know, 26 or 27 states, somewhere around there. I can't can't remember exactly how many, lost count, but as we went, we saw a ton of different geography, a ton of different sites, um, very different from our normal experience here in the upstate. You know, Oklahoma is not like upstate South Carolina, nor is New Mexico or Texas or Colorado. It's one thing to hear about Pikes Peak. It's another thing to go drive up Pikes Peak. It's one thing to know about altitude sickness. It's another thing to be hiking and realize you have no breath and must stop. Um, You can hear about places, but you get the feel for them when you're there. You can think you understand things until you kind of dive into it. You can have, we had all these preconceived notions about different things, and what we had to do was set aside those preconceived notions. We had to set aside what we heard. We had friends who told us, and and if you're one of those friends, this is not anti-you, this is just kind of comical. We had friends who told us that, hey, you know what, the Grand Canyon, meh. And we were like, okay, um, we're probably going to go there anyway. And uh, we had friends who were like, yeah, I went to the Grand Canyon. I just wasn't so impressed. And so like, okay. And um, so we, we tried to set aside what other people told us about those things and places. And we went and discovered them on our own. And actually, we, we were delighted to find that as we set those things aside, we experienced it for what it was. We learned about it. We, we saw it as if we'd never heard about it before. And, and we found that contrary to our friends, it was breathtaking, and it revealed the grandeur, the majesty, the might, the display of God's beauty, his, his variety, and all the different types of geography that God made. It revealed the Lord. When, when Paul says that all the creation speaks of the glory of God, it's very true. It was different from our normal experiences, but those differences spoke of the, the beauty and variety And those experiences continue. We went from places like Sequoia to Yosemite to the Redwoods, Oregon Coast, Yellowstone. And all of those places, we thought what we knew about them was true. But when we visited them and actually were there, it was different than what we thought. In each one of them, we were gladly surprised. We thought, oh, cool, we'll get to see some big trees. But to be there and to see how big they are is is truly amazing in Sequoia. Or to, to see Yellowstone and to be up close to those animals, that, but yet not close, too close. We, we weren't one of those fools who gets too close to the, to the bison, but the very day after we left, we, we heard about that. But the, the thing, the place that surprised us the most that was this place called the Badlands. We didn't expect to, to be surprised by that. 
Um, Julie and I had driven across the country back in 2000, and, and we had seen the Badlands in just driving through. Um, we got to explore a little bit, but we, didn't, we weren't really impressed with them very much. But this time, when we stopped, we stopped at the ranger station. We were like, you know what, we're not going to stop the Badlands, but you know, I'll just, I want to take the kids there so they can see what these weird colors and this weird earth is all about. So we stopped this time at the ranger station, and it helped us because it helped us orient to that place and that time. It helped us see things that were there that we never would have seen before um, if we just only set aside our preconceived notions. And we did that, and we saw these fossils. There was this treasure trove of fossils, and, and there was this room there where they had all these discoveries that they had just recently found, as well as some older ones. And, and we heard that on the average season, they find 100 fossils a month, visitors find, coming to there. Now, we didn't know that before, and we find that, and they're like, my goodness, this really is a treasure trove. And so, we were, we were there mid-July, I think they already found like 350 fossils, and the fossil season there doesn't start till mm, let's say, late April, because it's a little colder. Uh, I'm glad we live down here. But a very different place from us. And contrary to the landscape that's dry and barren, the fossils told a different story that was surprising of this really lush ecosystem. But stopping there and letting the ranger and these fossils kind of guide us and acclimate us to that place and not reading into it and seeing what was there, it was very helpful. Revelation has been a little like that journey for us as a church. You know, we've all heard all about Revelation, and some, some of us had had different teaching, and, and wildly different teaching. In this congregation, there's, there's all kinds of backgrounds of teaching in Revelation. We've heard all about it. But now I, I, I think what we've experienced is we've gone through it for ourselves. As we've walked through Revelation, we've been able to see things that we didn't know were there. We've been able to see the, the heights, the beauty, the glory of God in different ways. And I think that's what God intends. Instead of us picking and choosing or trying to use Revelation to suit our theology. Because God's not bound by our theological systems. We can't box him in and try to, to figure him out. It's just, that's not what God's all about. God's revealing himself, and, and he himself is an unlimited God, not bound by any human will. And it's been a beautiful journey, and we've discovered these wonderful vistas throughout the book. They've expanded. They've magnified our view of God in, in many ways. And, and every passage, if we, if we come to it again, has helped us see the grand designs of God. It's helped us better understand sins, sufferings, trials, tribulations, ourselves, the future, what's behind the current world systems, the future of those world systems, so that why? It all affects how we live now, today. It's been challenging, I think, for a lot of us. It's been challenging for me as I've, we've deliberately set aside any, any systems, any ideas about the text we've heard before and say, okay, let's just use some basic principles as we approach each passage, and I encourage all of us to do that continually in the Bible of Let's try to discover what this passage has to say for itself. What is God saying here at this time? Is it clear? How does it relate to other passages on either side of it in this, in this smaller context? How does it relate to the larger context of the book? How would the first hearers have heard it? How would they have received it? That should shape what it's meant to communicate to us. How does it expand or refer back? How can we see these new revelations of Jesus and ourselves, and then why is it here? What's it meant to reveal? Those are, it should all be things we bring, and then finally we should be asking, what, what is God now? What does God, in light of all of those things, have for us to see and apply? And we've been doing that as we've been going through Revelation. We're approaching this passage the same way, and why I'm setting it up so long like this is because this is probably the most controversial, not probably, this is the most controversial, the most debated passage in all of the, probably the Bible, if not 
Uh, I mean, all the New Testament, if not the whole Bible, at least in the book of Revelation. What I want us to do is say, okay, let's set aside any systems we have. Let's set aside any preconceived notions or let's set aside anything that we come to this passage thinking, well, here's what this means. Here's what that means. No, what does this passage say? Where's it clear? Where it's not clear, let's use charity towards one another. Let's, let's approach the Bible humbly. People have got divided or bitterly separated over these verses. May that never be said of us. May we approach things humbly. There's room for different ideas in this passage in our church and in the church. Instead of getting hung up on how this challenges, and this challenged my theological system, by the way, as I was reading this passage, I thought, okay, well, what is this text saying here? And it's challenging to me personally. Because, you know, we, we try to figure things out. We try to fit things together. And we put systems together that seem to make sense. And yet, sometimes God says, no, I'm, I'm not going to be put in a box. You, you, you need to hear from me how I'm speaking to you here. And, and that was what, as I was listening to Revelation, I was wrestling all week. I was wrestling all week. What do, I, what do we do with this? Because it's such a challenging passage. And then I realized, well, his word actually is faithful. And he always has something good to say to us in and through his word. And, and so as we come to this passage, it's, it's right on the heels of Revelation 19. And, and what we see in Revelation 19 is the return of Jesus. And then what do we see next? We see the great white throne. And what do we see after that? New heavens and new earth. And in this middle period here, in between the return of Jesus and the final judgment, we see a period of time that might make us uncomfortable, but God is unabashed and unashamed about laying out here for us. And John seems to be pretty excited about it. Look down your Bibles. He mentions something that seems to be the center idea, one of the center ideas about this whole time period that we, we read about, and he mentions it six times. Now, whenever Scripture mentions something six times in a row, this probably has something to do with emphasis in that passage, okay? Six times in, six, in the first six verses alone, out of ten verses, he mentions this thousand-year period. And so we think, what is this thousand-year period all about? How does it relate to us? What's it supposed to be? What does God have for us for those things? And, and God is faithful. He's, he's always going to enable us to apply his word. And, and I love that God has things for us from this text Regardless of where you're coming from, your interpretive grid, given the way that, that periods of time are, are sometimes used in Revelation, some people would say, well, that thousand years, it, it might not be literal, and that's fine. Either way, it doesn't affect um, our application of the passage. It, I would say that from this context, in this verse, if I don't read into it from any other place, it's the only place in Revelation where he mentions a thousand years, and he does it six times, and he seems to do it in the context of prophecy. It seems to be a specific amount of time, but... Who knows, it could be figurative, 10 times 100, you know, that could be figurative. But it's meant to communicate real truth either way, real truth for our encouragement. And the truth about this period of Christ's return before this great white throne of judgment, before the new heavens and the new earth, it's for our encouragement. And the first thing we're going to see in this passage really is that God dominates and will have Satan bound. We need, we need to see that and have hope in the fact that God dominates often in our world we can feel like some, someone else, something else, some system is dominating. You might even feel dominant. Here, here's the news for us, the good news. God dominates and he'll have Satan bound. Now notice there, he said he'll have Satan bound. He, he will have Satan bound. God 
God doesn't even need to stoop to bind Satan personally. He sends an angel. Not even, you don't even see Jesus doing this. We see just an unnamed angel. This, is, this should, should say something to us about the real power of Satan. The real, the real power of Satan is nowhere near the power of God. Satan's power doesn't elevate to any member of the Trinity. Satan's power is diminished so much, though, that an unnamed angel is sent down to bind him. He's, we see the very first picture down in verse 1. God dominates. He'll, he'll have Satan bound. Look in verse 1. He says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key. Now, we know from Revelation, a key is it was always meant to symbolize authority. It's, it's the key. is He opens doors that no one else can open. He shuts doors that no one else can open. And, and he does that with the key. And so he has authority. Now, it's not a literal key because Satan is a spiritual being. However, it's communicating real things. He's holding his hand a key, authority, to lock him up. And we're meant to get that because later it actually says prison. So he has a key to lock him in prison. Not only that, it says to the bottomless pit, and he's holding a great chain. Now, this great chain is probably the chains of the manacles that they would take, and they would bind somebody to the prison wall. There's, there's a lot of prison imagery in this passage here. It would have meant something to these early Christians in that day. When they say, he's got a key, they think, oh, he, he's going to put him in prison and lock him up. And then they hear he's got a chain. He's going to chain him to the wall. We're familiar with that. Some of our friends have been chained. We've seen before this mention of the abyss. In Revelation, John mentioned the abyss in Revelation 9. This angel is given the key to open a bottomless pit and release these demonic beings. They came out from the abyss, this abode of demons. And, and these, these demonic beings came out and they tortured people for a period of time after the blowing of the fifth trumpet. And then the second time we see it again is later on in that chapter. Then the angel of the abyss named Abaddon and Apollyon, the destroyer, king of the demons. They call suffering on the earth let out. Third time we saw in chapter 11, the, this, this beast is led out of the abyss and then goes in chapter 17. He's about to be led out and then goes to destruction. What we see here in chapter 20 is that an, we saw in the last chapter, they, they threw the false prophet and the beast into the lake of fire. They, they originally came from the, from the abyss. They've been thrown into the lake of fire. Now we see in this chapter an angel from God who has authority over this abyss, the abode of demons, and this one angel is sent down with authority. That should give you confidence in this life that the devil might seem to be raging and roaring like a lion, and he is roaring like a lion today. There are times and moments when the, the devil seems to roar loudly in your own life. In the world around, he's a thief who comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. He's, he's given rain to be able to deceive. And yet what we see here is this angel has authority over the abyss. He's got the key and the chain. So he has the power to bond the, bind these forces. And, this, and then look in verse 2 what he does. He, you, ever, you ever hear of grabbing a tiger by the tail? Well, this is even bigger. This, this dragon who we see earlier in Revelation, whose, whose tail swept among a third of the heavenly host down. That's an image of the dragon taking with him a third of the heavenly host of angels. He, he is, his power is in his deception, his, his ability to convince those who were right with God. Experiencing God's rule and reign, the angels themselves, he was able to convince a third of the heavenly host to come down. And, and so this devil has deceived. And it says, look in, in verse 2, so we're not unclear about who this is. He mentions four different ways of describing. He says, the dragon. He says, that ancient serpent. 
Now, that, when he says that ancient serpent, that should call to our minds, this is the same one who deceived Eve and Adam. This is the same one by whom sin entered into the world. So this is the same one, the dragon, who, who brought with him a third of the heavenly host, who rebelled against God, who wanted to be like God, who was under God's rule and reign and perfection, yet somehow still rebelled? And then we see this, this ancient serpent, and it says, this, this one who deceived Eve and Adam, who's the devil. He was active in, in Christ's day, opposing him, the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan, the one who we hear in 1 Peter, he roams about today like a roaring lion seeking someone who devour. There's the passage in John where it, it, it talks about how, how Jesus has, he's, he's bound the strong man and so that, that people can now see the truth. And yet still we see he's not been totally bound in this current age that we're living in because had he been currently bound, all of Scripture wouldn't make sense because all throughout the New Testament we see he's a deceiver, he's the accuser, he's the accuser of the brothers. He is the one who's continually after believers. He is the one who is, he is inspiring the beast. He's inspiring the false prophet. And now we see that there's no epic battle here. This dragon, this destroyer, he's bound for a thousand years. And so what we see here is Satan's definitively and he's completely bound. Look in verse 3. Why do, I, why do I say he's definitively completely bound? And it's different than what we're experiencing today. If, if you look at this passage, there is, there is wording here that is very different than what we experience. And, and John, God is trying to get this across to us. He's bound. Not only that, look at verse 3. Thrown into the pit. And so that we're not wondering if he comes out of the pit again like all the other demons we've seen coming out of the pit throughout the book of Revelation prior to now. It says he shut him in. And then he says he sealed it over him. That's the same language that's used for God sealing the scrolls that no one else can open. Exact same word here. He's thrown in. He's chained up to the wall. He's shut in. And he's sealed. So he might not deceive the nations any longer. This is a comprehensive sealing and shutting in. It's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. And it's different than what we experience today. That's actually meant to give us hope. That although he remains around, his power has been broken, but he's not finally been put away, one day he'll finally be put away. One day we won't have to worry about the deceiver, the accuser of the brothers will no longer speak. It's a dramatic change. He's shut down, unable to deceive. You know, Matthew 13, Jesus talks about how the devil today, he's, he's like the one who sows weeds in the kingdom. He's, he's busy. He's sowing weeds in the kingdom of Jesus. And the, he's sowing the weeds until the close of the age is what it says in Matthew 13. What we see here in Revelation 20 is the close of the age. And there's a difference here. The difference the way the scripture talks about Matthew 13. He's continuing to sow. He's in the kingdom. He's sowing weeds and he's sowing them until the close of the age and after which all calls of sin will be thrown into the fire furnace. And then we see in Ephesians 4, 27, Paul tells us, don't give any opportunity to the devil because he's currently around. He's actively seeking. Ephesians 6 tells us the church, the devil's scheming or battle here on earth is not against flesh and blood, right? But it's against what? Principalities and powers and wickedness in high places, we're actively battling. How do we battle? We put on the full armor of God. 
1 Timothy, Paul warns about the condemnation of the devil. He's, he's working to condemn us. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Um, I, Paul, again and again wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered me. It's the apostolic age. It's, it's the age that we live in today as well. John 12, 31. 5, 1 John 5, 18. He hinders, he deceives, he accuses, he's active. But now... He's not. In Revelation 2, we saw earlier that he was active. You remember back in Revelation 2, he warned these first century churches, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, and some of you will be put to death. So in Revelation 12, this picture with when Andy and Sally was here, and he, he, this, this, this wonderful picture in Revelation 12 on the cross, how the devil was thrown down from heaven, and where was he thrown down to? He was thrown down to earth. Jesus defeated him on the cross, and yet it warned the church in Revelation 12 that the devil is the deceiver of the world, and woe to you who are there because he is continuing to deceive. Revelation 12, 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows what? That his time is short, that time between his throwing down, between the cross, and between this period. On that day, the abyss is shut as sealed. The devil's authority will be bound. That should cause great rejoicing for us. And it should also cause perspective for you. When, when Scripture says, greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, than he that is in the world, the devil. That should make you say, I don't have to fear the devil. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God just sent an unnamed angel. And I'm sure God knows his name and he's very important. But to us, it's a reason why we don't have his name. Because we're not meant to. We're meant to see this is just an angel. And all it takes is an angel to, bound the de- to bind the devil because God is the one who's ultimately in control. God, God is the one in charge. God dominates. He'll bind Satan. And that's meant to give us hope here and now when we experience that spiritual warfare. One day, he'll be bound. God dominates. And he, he roars and yes, we're never meant to confront the devil on our own. We confront him with God's armor on. But the reality is, is that there is no challenge to God's power. God dominates, Satan will be bound. Now look down at verses 4 to 6. We see something else from this period of time here. We see that God dominates, Satan will be bound. That's good news for us. It should be good news for you today to resist sin, temptation. You don't have to give in. You don't have to listen to the devil. You can say no. You can resist him. And it says what? He'll flee from you, implying he's around you. Resist him. He'll flee from you because one day he will be bound completely. But not only that, believers will be raised and reign in joy. That's the second truth we see here. Believers will be raised and reign in joy. The restoration and joy of the saints to their purpose of reigning and ruling and having dominion in this earth is what we see here. You remember back in Genesis 1, what was God's command to Adam? It was, it was to, to rule, to dominate, to reign. To have, he gave him authority over the earth. He says, that you've been given dominion, this rule and reign. Adam, I want you to subject the world to God's rule, to God's reign. I want you to make things look like this garden that I've made. I want you to do the same. I want you to, to propagate God's rule and reign throughout the whole earth and bring everything under subjection to him. And yet, Adam's purpose, his very purpose was corrupted because of sin. Man's having authority 
and ruling and reigning on earth in God's presence with God's good, righteous reign, that was removed and taken away because man was corrupted by sin. And what do we see here? We see this creation mandate restored. This creation man is being restored. God, man is going to reign on earth with Jesus. It's, it's clear. Look at it in verses 4 and, four and 5. I should have left my verse markers on in my notes. I took them off. <laughs> Look at verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who not, had not worshipped and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now look at what it says. It says, they came to life. Same word used for the resurrection. Same word we'll see again in in the next verse where it talks about people being brought to life for the, after the thousand year period in verse five. They came to life. This this re- animation this they they were they were souls with christ and now he's brought them to life and they reigned with christ for what a thousand years we see that again and we're not told who's explicitly seated on those thrones but we know it's those who've been given authority to judge and 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 who is this here well primarily john has in mind the martyrs who've been put to death why because it's the ultimate vindication because the people in the church in this in this area of Asia Minor, these seven churches, they were experiencing persecution, and many of them were getting martyred. And probably right after this time, after the Apostle John wrote his letter, he, one of his disciples was a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John. He was one of the first martyrs, along with Justin Martyr. There were, there were people who John discipled who would be put to death, who would be martyred. Already people had been martyred in the early church by this time, and they needed to know There will be justice. Rome seems to rule, but one day we will rule and reign with Christ. And isn't that what we saw earlier in Revelation? If you let Revelation interpret Revelation, we see that earlier. Not only that, we see it in the rest of the Old Testament too. Daniel 7, 22 says, Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2, 12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. There is an earthly reign in mind. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world's be judged, and he goes on, how do you, how do you know, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And he goes on. These are those who share in the first resurrection. Look down your Bibles. It says, all those who had not worshipped and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. So this is a, a picture of Christ's return and then all of those who have died in Christ who did not worship the beast being raised to life and then ruling and reigning with him on earth. And and look at what he says here. He says, blessed are those, look down at verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Now, if there's a first resurrection, he talks about a second death, there's a second resurrection. This first resurrection, Jesus returns, he resurrects all the believers, and they rule and reign with him. And look look down at what happens in in Revelation 5.10, it says, they shall reign on the earth, speaking of a time when God's kingdom reign would occur and to be shared by everyone ransomed by Christ. These souls were, came to life. They ran, reigned with Christ. Believer, if you and most of us will die in Christ if he does not return before then. The majority of believers in the past have, who have already died in Christ, they thought that Jesus might return in their time 
And they needed a hope beyond the hope to say, you know, no matter what happens, though we die in Christ, we will reign with Christ. He will resurrect us to new life in the first resurrection and we'll reign with him. After that, the dead who do not die. So look, look in verse 5. It says, the rest of the dead do not come to life. So there's kind of a two-part here. We see, the, we see the first resurrection and then later the second part of the resurrection. The rest of the dead do not come to life until the thousand years were ended. There will be a period separating the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of unbelievers. Whenever Scripture refers to this resurrection, it's always the resurrection of the dead. It's always a bodily resurrection. Some people say, well, that first resurrection, that's new life. Well, these are talking about people who've already been believers and died in Christ. That's not possible here. And the second resurrection is definitely not talking about new life because that's unbelievers. You, you can't have the same word mean two different things in the exact same passage. This is talking about new life and resurrection. And it's mentioned twice very clearly. And after verse 5, the end of the thousand years will be second part. Those who died opposed to Christ will be resurrected to the second death. Jesus seemed to hint at that two-part kind of resurrection. Look in John 5, 28, he says, Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. But here's the blessing we should receive. No matter where you fall on the theological spectrum here, here's what you need to hear. Let's not, let's not debate the verses. Let's hear what God has for us. God will dominate. He will bind Satan. We will rule and reign with Christ on earth. And then here's, look in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. If you're a believer in Christ, you, you will be blessed and made holy because you share in his first resurrection. That's good news. And look at the second part of this wonderful news for us. Over such, the second death has no power. We won't die again. Some will be resurrected to die again, to be judged and die again. But for us, over those in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. Look in verse 6. Instead, they, those in the first resurrection, will be priests of God and of Christ. It says in the reign with him for a thousand years. We will have access to the inner presence, the holy presence of God. We priests of God and of Christ and we'll reign together with him. We shouldn't fear what people do to us. That's what Jesus told us in Matthew 10. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Death's the final enemy to be destroyed. The second death, it will have no power over us. Most of us will probably die. Here's the good news. The second death has no power over us who have placed our faith, our hope in Jesus Christ. And here's the other good news. We're going to reign with him. We'll be kings and priests with him. Almost all of us will die. Some will die in this age at the hands of the beast. Some will be martyred, but death has no power over you. You don't need to fear death will be raised to reign with Jesus. Not only that, God will completely remove Satan. God will completely remove Satan. It's the third and final truth we're going to look at in this passage is God will completely remove Satan. For a period of time, 
He's going to bind Satan. We're going to rule and reign with him on earth for a period of time. Now, now I believe that period of time is meant for a few things. It's, you know, all of creation currently is groaning is what Romans 8 tells us. All creation is currently groaning, not just us, but all creation around us. And yet, God's good purpose is to restore that creation mandate. And so, I believe that reigning and ruling is, we see that, that we can do that unencumbered by sin, Ruling and reigning on earth for a period of time, restoring God, restoring the damage that man has done through sin. Not only that, I think the period as well is just to show that it doesn't take Satan for people to continue in sin. Because we see at the end of that period, there will be people who, when Satan is released for a period of time, he's released. Um, Look down, I think it's in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, he's going to be let out of prison. And that prison language comes straight from the passage. When a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations. The nations that have enjoyed the rule and reign of Jesus and the rule and reign of his saints, and yet still mankind has shown that doesn't need the devil to rebel. So there's some who've not given themselves to Christ in that period. And so Satan will come out and deceive those people, deceive the nations. And then they're going to gather together for battle. We see those numbers like the seas of sand and marching up over the earth, surrounding the saints, the beloved city. But look in verse 9, the end of verse 9, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them, look down at verse 10, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophet already were. Did you catch that from verse from chapter 19? The beast and the prophet are already there where they were. Now the devil has been thrown into there. I think this, this passage is just challenging because you think, well, what, what is up with this 1,000-year period? Why, why is that? And then why bind the devil, put him in prison, shut it, seal it over him, only to let him out. Why not go straight to the new heavens? Well, first of all, because that's not how God designed it. So we need to be humble. Secondly, um, there's no casualties with God's exercise of justice. Nothing's left unresolved. He shows the utter and total depravity that people still rebel. People still do not turn to him even though Jesus is ruling and reigning. Now we think, how could that be? Easy. Prior to the creation of man, you you have the whole angelic host who was in God's presence experiencing his rule and his reign, and yet still the devil rebelled. This desire to be God is there. This purpose to redeem life on earth is, I think, what, what I believe this is for. All creation enjoying peace. You see Isaiah 11, kind of this picture of this, the lying the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The child will lead them. They'll play over the hole, the cobra. Um, they, they won't be hurt or destroyed in all of his holy kingdom. There's all this kingdom language in the Old Testament that's, that's not fully the removal of all, not the removal of the devil, but yet it's, it's not what we experience now. I, I love the way that Robert Mounts puts it. He says, neither the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time. In a thousand years, the devil will still rage. He's not reformed. Prison doesn't reform the devil. Not only that, 
the human heart's not altered by the mere passing of time. Grant Osborne puts it this way. He says, they'll be under Jesus' sovereign control and ruled by the saints. They won't experience Satan to be seated by him in any way. And all they will experience will be the benign rule of Jesus himself. Yet, after 14 lifetimes of enforced good, as soon as Satan is released, they allow themselves to be deceived all over again and follow him. And I love his imagining about the purpose. It's to prove the power of total depravity and demonstrate once and for all the necessity of eternal punishment. Period. The, the, this thousand-year period is this judicial evidence that will convict the earth dwellers and prove their eternal sin demands eternal punishment. And then this, this Gog and Magog, we see the armies of the earth. It's, it's what's pictured in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They represent God's last enemies on earth. And in that context, it's the evil hosts. Devil himself deceives, puts people together for a final battle. So the, the beast and the false prophet are tried. They've been thrown into the fiery lake after Christ's return in Revelation 19. Now we see the devil being released. They march up all these. This is like the, I think I mentioned last week, this is like the Battle of Helm's Deep all over again. This is this, is this huge number like the sands of the sea. And they, they're marching up. They're surrounding where God has made his holy place. And you think, oh gosh, here's another big battle. But look down in verse 9. It says, but fire came out from heaven and consumed them. God sends his holy fire from heaven and consumes them. The power of God is so overwhelming that even the devil and all those he's deceived, they can't begin the battle. And God destroys them. Fire comes down from heaven. He destroys them. Look in verse 10. The devil who deceived them, he was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night. It's, it's, it's all a part of God's plan. Why? Look down your Bible, it says that he must be. When, whenever you see the Bible say he must be, he must be released, he must be put there. This, this, it, it's all indicators. This is, this is all a part of God's plan for what must happen. He must be released. It speaks to God's purpose it makes plain the designs of Satan, the waywardness of man's heart. It won't be altered even when God rules. The devil deceives, but those who endure in Christ, they rule, they don't submit. What's the point of this whole passage? Why why do we see those three things in the very beginning? Why do do we see that God dominates, he binds? Why do we we see these truths in, in this passage? I think we see these things for a reason. Why do we see him completely removing Satan? Why do we see him having power over Satan? Why do we see all of the language in here, we, we want to see something here is that, that God wants to give us hope. God wants to give us hope. He's going to restore things. He's going to make all things new. We're going to have, we're going to rule and reign with him here on earth. He's going to restore the very purpose for which he created us. What a joy that is. We're going to be blessed. We're going to, we're going to be blessed and holy. Look, at, look down there. We won't be affected by the second death. We'll be blessed and holy. We'll share in his first resurrection. Satan will be finally bound. His power is just enough to be bound by a, an angel to begin with, and then God's going to consume him. I think this passage is meant to give hope to believers in their current circumstance and situation. Why? Because it was meant that way for the early church. 
How would the early church have received this? They didn't have the theological systems and constructs. They didn't have anything else clouding and fogging their vision. What they had were these verses, and they had the meaning in these verses. They had God's assurance telling them that, hey, don't worry whether someone takes your life or not, because ultimately you won't be hurt by the second death. Don't wonder if you're truly going to be blessed in this life, and don't think, I I need to seek to try to be blessed in this life most of all. No, you will be truly blessed. Don't, don't wonder, will you ever be holy? Yes, you will truly be holy. Don't wonder, will, will this world conquer me? Will my sin conquer me? No, it will not conquer. It will not have dominion. God conquers. He has dominion. He gives us this as guidance for our journey. You know, when we planned out our trip out west and back, we planned out the different stops along the way. We, you know, we used a Google Maps and GPS and different websites to kind of plan out our way. Why do we do that? Well, it's to keep us on track. We, we did that to kind of guide us on our path. We did that to keep us on course. We did that so that we could make sure we saw important things. That, and, and then as we went, we discovered every step of the way new things. God wants us to, to stay on course. That's how these verses are meant to function. They're meant to keep us on track to keep us faithful here and now, not meant for us to speculate. When does all this happen? How does this happen? You know what? I don't think you'll be disappointed no matter what. Let's say I'm completely wrong, that I'm getting this all wrong. You know what I'm not getting wrong? The truth that God dominates, he'll bind Satan. The fact that, that he's ruling and reigning, we'll rule and reign with him, that's not wrong. The fact that, that one day he'll completely do away with the devil, those are truths that are meant to anchor our souls today when you're fearful, when you're worried when you're anxious. And it's meant to reorient our thinking when it's, when it's hard. It's meant to give us hope for what's to come. It's meant to calm our souls and to trust in him now. If, if an angel binds Satan, why are we so intimidated now? We have the Holy Spirit within us. If, if God has mapped out our entire course, we can rest in that and have joy for the journey. We can hope in him for the future. We'll reign. We'll be blessed. We'll be holy. And one day he'll put down the final deceiver of the brothers, the accuser of the brothers, the the one who corrupted, who deceived Adam and Eve to begin with and corrupted his whole creation to begin with. One day it'll all be restored. And that's good news for us. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that this would give us joy for the journey in guidance that we keep us on track, keep us on course. I pray that we orient our thinking knowing that you have and will finally bind, finally get rid of evil, that you dominate, that we'll reign with you. God, I pray these truths would give us joy now, hope now. God, we don't know all the details. We don't need to. What we know is, is the path that you've laid out for us. And the course is set. Lord, help us enjoy the journey along the way, not losing sight of you, the one who's designed and laid this out. We pray these things for our good and joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.